This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music and maps to money and modernity, this is where ideas come together. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, with us in studio, we have a couple uh, special guests. Uh, Andrew Shariari, and a returning guest, uh, Chomney. Sawadikrab. Yeah, Sawadikrab. Uh, for, uh, I'll often dig up the episode, but uh, listeners will uh, want to go back and hear some of his great work on uh, an earlier episode on Thai music and uh, steel band, uh, which was a pretty amazing. Have you heard that, Andrew? She, that you were telling me about that, I think. Yeah, if you want to hear Not pretty you, awesome collaborate, awesome collaboration of uh, Thai steel band music, uh, those worlds, they deserve to be together. Yeah, we call it a world premiere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, as <laughs> I think it's safe to say, is t- the steel band uh, ever been done in yeah, Thailand be- with Thai it's music? It's a Kanchana purpose of the <laughs> world premiere, premiere, yeah. Steel Pan and Bong Lang Ensemble. Mm. That's right. Well, uh, Andrew is uh, uh, anthropologist at, at Kent State and uh, came to us to talk about Lana traditions and music and dance of, of Northern Thailand. So um, thanks for joining us. Well, uh, first question I have is is a bit of uh, behind the music. Um, how did how did you how did you get into Thailand and, and world music in general? Yeah, um, well, the first my first exposure to Thai music was when I was looking for an ethnomusicology program, and I went to visit Kent State University and met with Terry Miller, who is probably the most prominent ethnomusicologist that studies music from Southeast, mainland Southeast Asia, and uh, he handed me a Ton Ramana, which is the drums from Central Thailand, and played a little bit of that for a little workshop he was doing for some kids, and that was my introduction to Thai music. How, um, Chami, you have some experience exposing um, U.S. audience and world audiences to 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 Thai music. What what happens when you play uh, in front of uh, in front of these interested? Well, groups? for the central, like the central, is really hard to get into the non-music background audience. But the northeastern is really catchy. Mm. I still remember uh, Dr. Andrew in 1998 or 1999. Mm. The group of doc, doc, Dr. Miller came. Yeah. And we have, uh, I think, and Andre. He played guitar, but he played the Ranat in that time. Uh, Daniel. Daniel, Langham. yes. Yeah. Long hair. Yeah, that was a big event. Um, what he's talking about is 1998 uh, Kent State University Tie Ensemble, which is the longest continuous running Thai ensemble in an academic setting in the United States. It's like 30-some years old, and Terry's always been the director for that. Um, but this was in 1998, the first time we took he took a group of us to Thailand for a tour of the country, and we performed um, Mahori music primarily, and uh, uh, you know through Bangkok, Chiang Mai, Lampang, up into Mahasarakam, that area as well. So that was the first time I met you, right? Yes. But you know, I impressive. Yeah, why well, I, I wasn't impressive, but <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that I mean you the Kings got the got the um, really. <laughs> strict rules of the the student even nowadays uh we went and met you at in in at ucla mm, and right. you guys still treated the student exactly sit properly yeah yeah dress conservatively yeah and you stick together 
and present the paper in the scholar in the set mode and, and, and still it's still going on in that time mm -hmm. and now and then too. well Prayon Nanonkam Ajahn Kyo he's now the director of the ensemble and he he makes a special point of you know keeping the etiquette associated with um, performance of the instruments so all mm -hmm. the students even if he doesn't necessarily explain it he expects them to go through the behaviors and I know you do the same kind of thing with your students uh, here in the Chicago area, right? I That's try. A big, I try. big part of it, yeah. Yes, because it's not just about playing the music. There's all the cultural Behind aspect that, that mm -hmm. goes with it. Yeah, I was just going to ask: Is there kind of a, a school of thought about to, trying to inhabit as much of that kind of that performative space as well as not just the the notes themselves? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I think at least speaking from you know Kent State perspective and being an outsider to the tradition, you know, just learning the notes is. You're just learning the notes, you know, right. but but connecting it with what it might mean to people and, and all that sort of surrounding, you know, paying respect to the instruments, uh, being careful with your feet and, mm -hmm. you know, acknowledging um, sort of the status, particularly of the central music as being an important sense of Thai identity. Uh, that's that's important in the education and learning the instruments as well. The music that's as well. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Well, then the, there's the uh, there's the assumption, the, the hope that our students are gonna are gonna go there and right. and 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 maybe participate as well. So mm. they'll they yeah. will they will know all that implicitly. Yeah, we had um, so last winter break, December 2018, we brought three of our um, more dedicated students in the current Kent State Ensemble. Uh, to perform in in Thailand, various places. We toured a lot of places in the country, and we went to the uh, city pillar in Bangkok, right? And uh, you know, it's a holy site and what have you. Mm. And uh, we were talking. Terry Miller was there as well. We were talking to the musicians, and we were speaking in Thai. And the three students are sitting there going like. What are they talking about? And all of a sudden, they're invited. We told them they were musicians, and then the people invited them to play the the <laughs> instruments. And the students are like, "What is happening?" And we kind of get up there, get up there. And so they played some, um, you know, played a little bit of music that they had learned from Ajahn Kyo. Um, and then the dancers knew the the tunes, and they started dancing at the city pillar, which I swear to goodness has to be like in the whole of Thai history, the first time that Farang played music <laughs> at the city pillar wow. in Bangkok. So I was pretty proud of them, and I think it was one of the highlights of the tour. Yeah, it's uh, the a little a little bit goes a long way, in just of showing uh, some appreciation of Southeast Asian culture. You're going to get uh, yeah, and they knew how them. to behave. My point is, they knew how to behave in that mm, context. Yeah, because Ajahn Kyo had taught them to be yes. respectful gestures. and humble, and the correct gestures and wiring the instruments and and what that meant. So now your um, our our listeners will hopefully you know a bit about, about Thailand, but they might not know as much about um, Lana and Northern Thailand. Can you, um, uh, maybe, maybe both of you, give us a, give us a brief history of, of, of Lana, Andrew. Me? Oh, <laughs> you're the Thai well, guy. Well, I was born in Central. <laughs> yeah. But well, I have the second house in, in Chiang Rai. <laughs> not the oh. second house. I mean, nice, not, not nice. wife, but uh, yeah, second house in Chiang Rai. Don't say that too loud. Man. You're just being, edit that part out, right? The <laughs> yeah, second wife. Out. But however, I learned the Pichum. Oh, you learned Pichum. Okay. I learned Pichum from the local yeah. Chiang Rai. So. Yeah. Well, so the Lana Kingdom goes back to the 
late 13th century is kind of when it's considered, even though the history actually is a little bit earlier. And um, King Mangrai, I, I kind of talked about this earlier today, um, is considered the founder of the Lana Kingdom. Lana means a million fields or like a million rice fields. And it was the powerhouse in the northern region. Um, the Siamese Kingdom comes, you know, alongside of that. Um, and essentially the Lana Kingdom kind of was in the tough position of being between other armies like the Mongol Empire for a period tries to invade Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia. And so the Siamese kingdom was able to expand because the Lana kingdom existed um, Mm -hmm. for so many years. And eventually it does get overrun by the Burmese, and uh, there's a long period in there where it was ruled by the the Burmese. And then, um, you know, the Siamese kingdom comes and reclaims the, the region and eventually, um, as I mentioned, King Chula Longhorn annexes the Lana Kingdom to be part of the Siamese Kingdom. And uh, now it's, you know, a part of Thailand, one of the mm-hmm. unique regions of the country. What did, its, um, what did its incorporation in the music canon do for Lana traditions? Did that, did that, was that positive or negative for those indigenous traditions being kind of pulled firmly into Siam? Yeah, I think, well, so Princess Dereratsumi was, um, she kind of was the symbolic union of the Lana kingdom with the Siamese kingdom. And uh, so she married Chula Longhorn, and she brought a troupe of musicians and dancers with her when she traveled to Bangkok. And, you know, she was concerned about maintaining local customs. And so she kind of fitted it in with this you know, influence from Bangkok and how those local customs might be presented differently so that they would maintain sort of respect and status um, with the new sort of ruling power. And so when she went back to Lana and started teaching uh, how the, you know, how the traditions could be presented differently, I think people fairly readily Mm -hmm. accepted that, particularly around Chiang Mai where she lived. As you get outside of Chiang Mai into Chiang Rai or other areas, you'll see that it's a little bit less... Um, influenced by the Bangkok traditions, right. um, and and you know that's that happened to the language too. Yeah, yeah. The Thai accent, the Lana accent, and Bangkok accent, and northeastern part Isan music and language, the southern uh, music and language, the same thing corresponding. Mm. The accent we somehow I don't understand the the Lana people speaking, mm-hmm. even though the same country, mm-hmm. and um, but one thing that. Uh, the urbanization of the central of Thailand. I still believe when I study central music, I can't play any kind of music in Thailand. Mm. But I don't know Lana can reverse that process. Mm -hmm. So uh, music and language is corresponding. Yeah. So, um, but... Well, generational too. I think, um, you know, the younger generation is... They obviously yeah. know Central Thai, but a lot. Yeah. They, they know they, less. They're, and they're not less talking Lana nowadays. nowadays. Yeah. Right. Nowadays. It, it, is is there a is there a, is there a movement in 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 Northern Thailand that uh, to sort of self consciously to to preserve these traditions uh, yeah. in a way that's um, that they might they might otherwise disappear. Yeah, I think um, you know starting roughly in like the 1980s was a big push towards regional identity. Mm. And when I did, first did my field work in the 1990s, that was really kind of a hot thing. If you're Isan, you really celebrate that. If you're Lana, really celebrate that. Right. And it came out a lot, not only in language, but also 
like I say, in music and dance. And I think that's continued on. I know I had a big hiatus in there between my early research in the 90s and the last couple of years that I've been um, back. But the the language is a big sort of marker of Lana identity, yeah. just as the musical instruments and the and the. I feel like ha- it's happened in Hawaii, too. Uh, Hawaii, they try to keep the Hawaiian flag along with the United States flag. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so they believe that um, the King Kamehameha will come back one day. Mm-hmm. So I, I maybe it is my point of view that the Lana Kingdom one day might come back. Mm-hmm. And they try to, and maybe need more research, but my understanding, like Lana tried to uh, preserve a language, dance music, so you can have the unique and your characteristics still going on that time. Yeah. So they still believe that the Lana Kingdom will come back one day. Mm, well, that, that's, that that's, would be surprising. That's my, my long term. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mentioned about Princess Dararatsumi and kind of making this concerted effort to, you know, Lana is often used synonymously with the, ta- the term Lana Tai, which is that oh. sense of connecting the two. And I think that um, the idea of, you know, you can be Lana, but you're also Thai. Mm-hmm. And that the Thai is sort of the overriding identity, whereas you can still take pride in your local mm-hmm. identity. That's good. But I don't know, maybe Chubney's right. Maybe there will be a revolution in the <laughs> north and the kingdom will be reestablished. <laughs> wow, hot takes from the... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going there. That's Chub- um, so the, the uh, you know, interesting you brought up... Um, the Hawaii uh, and the, Andrew had mentioned that the based on sort of the inspired by things like the Polynesian Cultural Center, these kind of um, tourist performance capture shows. I also worked mm. at the Polynesian Cultural Center. Oh, you that's did? another side story. But oh um, God, that's cool. <laughs> uh, uh, the um, the the contact dinner shows in uh, in, in, in Chiang Mai. Uh, so I guess the larger question: what what are those? But also the degree to which. Um, tourist and and kind of cultural performance the, the the degree to which they factor into um indigenous music capture and traditions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well so i was lucky in the 1990s that kun un chutima was still alive mm-hmm. so i got a chance to um interview her a couple of times and um as you say she and her brother they had who were you know prominent figures in in uh, the Lana er, in Chiang Mai during the early 1970s, they had a chance to visit the Polynesian Cultural Center in mm-hmm. Hawaii, and they were just really impressed with how the local customs were presented in a way that appealed to tourists. And so when they went back to Chiang Mai, they said, we got to do that. You know, we want to maintain our traditions, mm-hmm. but we also want to to present them to the world. And so they built this what's called the old Chiang Mai Cultural Center and has Lana style Thai houses, you know, and they had mm-hmm. workshops and textiles and, um, you know, the, the local cuisine was kind of put into a context of a dinner show, much like a like, luau, like a luau yeah. from, from the Hawaiian thing. <laughs> and so it was again, right, right out of that idea, yeah. but just a new mm-hmm. sort of setting. No, I got it. Yeah. I'm still like, I've been curious about the Chiang Mai make that. Yeah, the Polynesian, the same thing. That's Luau, where they were inspired. King by. Kamehameha carried the pork, dig the <laughs> ground, put the pork on the ground and grill, mm. and they bring the pork and serve you for the luau party. Right, the kantok, right. equivalent to the northern kantok. Yeah, it's it parallels yeah. it very much the same. So they, 
they'll bring out food that's local, kind of gang hanglei, and um, you know different types of foods that are kind of distinctive of the northern region as mm. opposed to Isan or the central Thailand. And um, so you, as a guest, as a tourist that's visiting, you eat that food. Yeah. And then after the food is served, they put on a show of the mm. the local music and dance. W- one thing that that fascinated me at the about say the Polynesian Cultural Center, for example, you had like say. Um, kids from kids from New Zealand Maori kids who who re- really like you know they grew up in like Auckland or whatever they they weren't they weren't they didn't really know quote unquote their customs and traditions and actually like they got scholarship and working at the Polynesian Cultural Center they actually became uh they understood the the traditions the carving mm. the tattooing the 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 it was it was it was kind of fascinating to watch like the degree to which um the the kind of what it might see on the surf, surface and, and, you know, not without uh, cultural critique of, of kind of tourist performance art, but actually for some of the indigenous performers, it becomes a, it becomes a way into the culture that they, that, 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 that urbanization or other had, had actually bypassed it is what's happening in Northern Thailand is, are there more musicians? Does that give jobs like to, and oh, what, yeah. what, what happens as a result of that? Well, so after the old Chiang Mai cultural center, you know, was established then, and they saw that the dinner show was the big attraction for tourists and consequently money was being made. Um, right. the hotels in particular, some of the other businesses, yeah. they said, Ooh, we have to do that. And so they started putting on just the show. They didn't have all the other historical stuff that the old Chiang Mai okay. cultural center did. They just focused, on the dinner show and um, it became very popular with obviously in tourism and such and um, you know it's now it's you know however many years later 50 years later there's you know more than a dozen of these around town and they're always busloads of people that wow. come every single night of the year is open and so there are varying qualities i've been to a lot of them and sometimes the food <laughs> is not all that great and not really representative and the dancers who do the performances every single night do, do like chinese tourists go as well a lot of chinese Westerners? tourists will okay. go a lot of chinese it's interesting a lot of chinese and westerners will go and then um tourists from bangkok will go as oh, yeah. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, but it's interesting because a lot of times the tourists from Bangkok aren't that interested in the music and dance. They're more interested in the food because they can <laughs> eat as much as they want for one price. So that's the big draw for the Thai I've never tourists. been there. Uh, good to know that. They, they, they build like that. But money, again, I, I was thinking as to like, I can't stay in just one, one agenda. I was thinking about Korean. Uh, Korean give out the... Um, scholar out there to go to Korea and learn the drum mm-hmm. and they just want to make culture or the music to make industrial like give the knowledge to people who got zero background of the Thai Korean or Hawaiian music just come and learn and I think it's a good good idea yeah the yeah. politicians should make that yeah. every country should make that yeah give out scholarship yeah, learn well, it if and tourists come. Sure. Tourists come. The Kantok dinners in in Chiang Mai. The performers are typically from like the Dramatic Arts College, and so mm. it's a little bit you know the idea that they are learning these traditions in association with the tourist centers is is not that's not where they're learning it. They're mm. learning it at a school, fine and then they're yeah at the School of mm. Fine Arts, and they're hired by these venues to right. do the performances. But so as you asked before, there's a lot of jobs. That's how you know the kids can make right. money on right. the side. 
um, which is great. And, you know, there's some criticism about it as a sort of artificial commodification of culture and that kind of thing. But, you know, my from my point of view, tourists aren't going to get to see it otherwise. Right, correct. Yeah. It's so. hard to, like you, you mentioned about the font lip, mm-hmm. the one that you mentioned that there's no farang in, in that festival. Yeah. So how are you going to get hand on the culture if you're not making that happen? So they got some way, moderate way to work Right. Between culture and tourist spot, right. I think it's a good idea. Well, well plus, right. like you can't discount. Like I remember, like as a you know, eighteen year old, like hearing the the gamelan, like in Indonesia, and just being like completely like overwhelmed by this this incredible thing that I had never heard before, mm-hmm. and just all of the you know things out there that I wanted to figure out and try to like you know like you can't discount like what like a, an audience member. Like, yeah, what just they really, might. really moved or impressed by this is this is like powerful music. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and again, if you go to Chiang Mai, it's kind of ubiquitous as a tourist that you're going to go see a Kantok dinner show. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of before you go, do a little bit of research, mm. right? As to which one is the good one, you know, yeah, which ones are the good ones. Of the indigenous show. Yeah, yeah. because um, you know the dancers that take the the art seriously right. you can you can really tell that in the performers you know they're they're up there and with the smiles and all that but they're very careful about how they're representing their culture some of the other ones are just oh i'm you know <laughs> making some money and on the side and they they don't pay as much attention but um you can find nowadays it's so easy just jump on TripAdvisor or whatever and you can get some you know feedback on which are the good places to go now you also uh you also showed some really fascinating examples of things that tourists really don't get to go to or don't have access to. One of them was the uh, spirit dance rituals, mm-hmm. which are really, which are really interesting. Um, what uh, what happens in a spirit dance ritual? Well, so there are different sort of categories of spirit dances, and uh, you know, some of them are more public, opened uh, to just anybody of any family lineage. And then there's the private ones that I kind of uh, relate to, like a like a family reunion. If you've ever been to a family reunion, <clears throat> and so what happens at a spirit dance is that a spirit will possess an individual, who, you know, in the material plane, um, that is there at the event, and uh, it's a way for the the living to come in contact with people who have passed already. Um, and vice versa, that the spirit can once again come amongst the living. Maybe, uh, maybe Chumney might be able to speak to this uh, as you know, well, an insider to Thai culture. I, well, I saw it, but I don't believe it. But <laughs> I, what, what what I saw is the Mon Mon people, mm-hmm. because my hometown is uh, 15 minutes away from Bangkok. Mm-hmm. I commute every day. Um, my hometown is more like the Khmer or Mon people um, migrated to to Thailand. And they have the same ritual. Mm-hmm. They play the drum, so we know exactly. They try to tell the message that local people know that this is what happened. And it's more like animism, like I keep saying it. Is uh, but yeah, predates mostly, Buddhism. Yeah, but mostly I'm the Buddhist uh, all the way, so I try not to think about the animism. But mm. it is interesting to make a research if put in that way. Yeah, and it's still going on about people think that the reincarnation. And uh, how we gonna reincarnation? How we gonna communicate the ancestor, uh, the the, the pr- people who pass away? Yeah. Uh, still happen nowadays mm-hmm. uh, in Thailand. Um, I don't want to say it's uh, it's about belief. So I respect mm-hmm. people who believe on that. Mm-hmm. Um, why isn't 
Andrew, why is it inaccurate to call these uh, uh, trans dances? So um, Gilbert Roger did a big study. It's entitled Music and Trance, and he primarily focused on Haitian uh, Vodou mm. traditions. But um, he makes a delineation between what is trance versus possession. Mm. And trance is where you know a, an individual in the material plane, their spirit kind of travels to a you know ethereal plane. For, to communicate with whatever the tradition might be, spirits and what have you. Possession is the other way around. Oh. The spirit comes from the spirit plane into the material world, and the way they do that is they will enter um, the body of a person um, whose frequency, so to speak, matches up with them. And that that's when the living can then literally, from their belief system, come into contact with that spirit. They can ask them questions. They can ask for advice. Um, you know, they can just simply spend time together dancing, eating together, smoking cigars, drinking, all that I kind of I think I watched one movie, Bruce Willis play on that. He played with the radio hertz frequency, and uh -huh. somehow he can communicate to the ghost. I got to <laughs> go and search for that. But this is about research. No, it's about research. I think, I think he communicates. That might so, be sorry, a more sorry. popular context for, for spirit communication. But. Yeah. But um, but I yeah, what do they what do they want what do the what I mean from the in in their own uh, sort of thought world what is the what what do the spirits want and what are the the humans like what how do how, what's what's going on uh, I mean you know again I'm not part of the tradition so I'm just kind of speaking from my outside perspective but um, I think you interviewed some of the some of the folks right yeah the, yeah. yeah yeah so I I think that the the main idea is just about community you know and for believers the community includes pe people who have passed you know their ancestral are, are the are these known ancestors that that come back to them or are these strangers that, the spirits no the typically well a person that gets possessed oftentimes will be of family lineage so i talked about those sort of family reunions um, i showed a video example earlier today uh, with my presentation where the woman that got possessed was possessed by one of her relatives that hadn't hadn't been able to visit with her family, as it were, um, because there wasn't anybody there who operated on the same frequency as mm. she did, the spiritual frequency. So that was the sobbing, you know, crying of like joy, that the spirit was the one crying. That's the belief. So when I talked to the woman, um, you know, she was the one that brought me to the, to the event, and she was the one who got possessed. I asked her afterwards if she had any recollection of the spirit things, she said, and I've seen this in other traditions as well, or read about it, where it just like was a, like a rush of adrenaline or a rush of like a heat, uh, a hot feeling that, you know, that was the last thing she could remember. And then all the activity that, you know, the dancing and, you know, kind of passing on all that kind of stuff, she didn't remember any of that part um, uh, because she was possessed by the spirit. So her sort of consciousness had left her. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I was going to ask, Chomney, are the, are, are, say, more mainstream uh, uh, Theravada, Thai, Buddhists, are they, are they, um, are they, are they told to, to, to look out for these or to be ear weary? Is, is there a discourse uh, in the, in the Thai Theravada community about, um, you know, animist or 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 non-Buddhist kinds of rituals like these, and are, are they supposed to watch out for them, or is they're just mm. uh, seen as as uh, non-threatening, or what? What's the what's the what's the party line? Theravada got to let it go. 
the more uh, even the monks say that's I'm sorry that the dumb people doing that way. That that that, that would right. be sort of the monks right. saying. The monks say the monks say people who don't know better. Right, consciousness is about well, Buddhism is about self uh, instructed. Um, what you believe is not not is um, Buddhism and science. Uh, for my perspective, the same thing. Something that you can prove, the cause and effect. So what what the the trance is all about uh, process is not provable. So what what the good thing is, uh, the monks say you get community going on, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. So that's why the monk not stop and still see the good the good idea of get together and people get you know to know each other. But for belief, Theravada not believe in that that way. Right. And, right, right. Um, yeah. But um, it depends because Thailand is. I would would like to talk to my country is really weak on belief on the Theravada Buddhism. Mm. So when you weak on practice, you're gonna believe more more on that animism. Mm. So it's it's about ratio. If they practice more, that means the Theravada Buddhist is weak. Mm. It's, it's in a good ratio. And again, urbanization, when you go to Chiang Mai, it's out really far out. So the same thing, when you find out uh, the Buddhist is practice is not unreachable in that, in that area. Mm-hmm. So it's more like practice on the trance and things like that happen. You can mm-hmm. see that. I'm always with all religions. Uh, until I die, I have no idea. So, <laughs> yeah. so I really don't, you know, say whether or not it, the possession is actually happening. I just yeah, that's even not even an interesting or approvable or interesting question. It's more of like what are they what what is what is sort of thought to have been going on or how do they how how is it right, perceived? Right. The the your your research subjects are they um, are they also they would consider themselves uh, Buddhist as well, and they're doing this in, in addition to it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I I think the thing that I again from the outside perspective and Chumni as you know practicing Buddhist, yes, yes. can speak more about this, I suppose. You know, there's this sense in the United States, for example, if you're a Christian, you can't be anything else. Mm. You're Christian. That's yeah. it. Right. But for Thais, as far as Buddhism, if you're a Buddhist, well, you can also be Christian. You can also be Muslim. You know, it's one of many different paths, as it were, uh, towards enlightenment. Exactly. So, so I think that's a different... You can, you know, maybe... You're saying the animistic traditions might not be as well accepted, but is the idea that I think that people accept I can be Buddhist, I can also follow these animistic practices, I can also be Christian. It's uh, a little flexible. That's a good way to put it, because I was the Catholic student before, too. So Buddhist is open up. And Buddhist is more challenged that we are strong enough that you can try something else. So you can make your own judgment. You want to go for your alternative way, you, you go ahead. But you want to come back, you stay strong, and you still go two sides, that's fine too. You get married, you don't need to convert, still maintain the same thing. Christian, mm. Buddhist, in the same house. That's simple. Yeah. So it's a good point that you bring it up there, animism. And yeah. I've met you know, plenty of people who wear a you know, Christian cross necklace right next to their you know, Buddhist amulet ne- necklace, right? So yeah. it's accepted that you can do that. Um, you, you brought with you in studio, uh, uh, the, 
pinpia. Pinpia, yeah. Say that right. Um, it's part of the Komong instruments, um, which is a pretty awesome. Uh, I guess to just describe for our listeners who can't uh, who can't uh, see this, but it's a it's right. awesome. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> so it's a chest resonated stick zither. Um, that's the sort of you know. official <laughs> title. title. Yeah, yeah. I have to imagine, man, yeah. when you hear it, I'm like, that's stick. That's a that's a that's that's my uh, alt rock band. It's the, <laughs> the, the chest resonated, resonated sticks in there. Um, so basically, what it is is a pole, right? That has two to four, sometimes even more strings attached to it, um, and uh, on the pole are the, there's the two pegs, and then it's tied around at the head or at the one end of it. There's a metal piece. Uh, that's typically fashioned in the shape of like an elephant, so it has big, huge ears that the strings will go over, and, and that kind of acts. Is yours like a kind bridge. of a water buffalo? What is that? This one's a, like an like an elephant. Is kind okay, of okay. Oh, I, I see. Trunk, I, I see it now. There it is. The, the ears, and it might be a mythological creature, sometimes a peacock or something like that. And then, um, so the metal piece is attached to one end of the pole. The strings will run over the the top of the metal piece. And the vibrations from the strings travel down the metal, down the pole, and up at the towards the other end of the instrument. There's a, a coconut shell that, uh, like a half coconut shell, um, that resonates the vibrations. And so, if you just pluck the string, right, the yeah. sound will come out of the coconut resonator. But the chest resonated part is that when you do it in practice, you hold the coconut shell up to your your body. And you can move the coconut away from your body to get different vibrato type effects. As I click on the headphone cable, right? Can you hear that okay as I bump the microphone? Yeah. Now you, now you brought up, Andrew, that uh, really you're supposed to play this shirtless. <laughs> Right, right. The, Take it off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for the listeners who can't see, Andrew is shirtless now. He's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the original context for the instrument was it was used in courting rituals where the young man would travel to a woman's, a young lady's house and, uh, you know, play the instrument for her in hopes that she would fall in love with him. And That's uh, how Chomney got married. Yes. Yeah. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, there are different instruments that would be used, like kluwi, which is a type of flute, or you know the sung, which is a type of plucked. So flute. it's really it's according and plus plus the the the, the shirtless the aspect. shirtless thing allowed them to show off their physique, and you know the idea there was that they were like if they were strong, it meant they were you know hard workers, and mm. they oh, yeah, would yeah. be able to provide right. for the woman. The other thing about the pidbia, though, compared to those other instruments, the other instruments are kind of loud. Mm. And the ladies' uh, houses, when they'd go to woo them, the, the lana houses are two stories, and the women would be up top. So yeah. the pidbia, though, has a very quiet sound. The way it's played is you play the harmonics on one string. So the instrument itself is not very loud. So... Consequently, if the man came jaunting up and had his pimpia and she said, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to come up, then he would be like, okay, well, I'll just stay down here and play. <laughs> and then he would play the <laughs> instrument and she might hear the sounds and like become intrigued. Yeah. Like, okay. I can't hear you. Can't you play oh, any louder? Get, get closer. And he would say, mm -hmm. he would say, well, yeah. if you let me come up, I can play it for you. So that was his in. It's the guy with the acoustic guitar. Hey, can you play us a, play us a song there? Okay, I'll do my best here. 
So this is a little melody from Salmai, which is like so. Sil- hold on a second. Let's we, we can we can cut this. But let Chamney get the microphone in the right place, and I'm going to turn up the turn up the volume and get when you're ready to go. Tell me. Okay. Yeah. Wait. Let me move this guy. Yeah. Here, wait. Yeah. Here. Okay. Hold, I'll hold it. Okay. Right. Ready. Ready. But um, yeah, it's uh, the instrument, as I was talking about earlier today, you know, the courting practice, um, because of the bare chest, during the 1950s and such, around the people in Songkram era, a lot of local traditions were kind of suppressed if they were considered mm. vulgar in any way. So betel nut with the you know, black yeah. teeth was kind of just strongly discouraged. And the pimpia with the bare chest um, was discouraged as well. And so that coupled with the idea that once you wooed your lady and were married, you were supposed to give up playing the instrument, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you might be, you know, your wife might ask, why are you learning that instrument <laughs> again? she catches you playing it again, it's like, what is he up to? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Is that the reason he's here now? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> My wife's not with me. <laughs> yeah, right. You can play the pimpial you want. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but so after that period, uh, there weren't that many people that, um, played the instrument. And then in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was an American ethnomusicologist, Gerald Dyke, who uh, was living in Chiang Mai. And he came across this instrument and he's like, I've never seen that before. And he wrote a three little three-page um, article for UCLA Selected Reports in Ethnomusicology. Um, I think it came out like in 1973 or something. And um, it was entitled The Vanishing Pia. Mm-hmm. Because he was he just really felt that instrument's going to die when these old guys who haven't played it for 40 years, when they die, it's gone. Nobody's going to know how to play it. So he wrote the little article, and then in the 1980s, uh, a, a local Thai scholar, Ajahn Prasit Leo Siropong, he um, discovered the recordings that Jerry had made at Payab University's kept at the archives there, as well as the article on the Vanishing Pia. And he's a local guy, right, an academic and I had never well, seen this instrument before in my life, and however old he was. And so he set about to try to find Pia musicians, and he played a huge role in just sort of the, the interest in Lana music generally. He wrote his master's thesis on saw performance, which is a vocal repartee tra- tradition from Lana. And then also the idea of the Pimpia teaching it to his students in the college setting. So for when I came in the 1990s, the Pia was just starting to get, like, there were a lot of young students who were starting to learn it, and they were creating new music with it. Mm-hmm. It was totally devoid of the courting context. You never saw it in that context anymore. But now it had become kind of symbolic of Lana music and the ancient heritage because the, there is depictions of the instrument on Angkor Wat going back to, like, the 11th century, 12th century, mm. you know, and, and the history of it is considered to come from India and yada, yada, yada. So it's, a, it's an instrument that they take great pride in in the North. And uh, like I say, Ajahn Prasit and the students that have learned it since then um, have very much tried to push it outside of academic circles so that more people in the community are aware of it, know about it. And there's still not a lot of people that play it just 
on their own if they're not affiliated with the school or whatever. But uh, they're teaching it in grade schools, you know, as a part of Lana heritage. Uh, and so you'll find it in maybe festival contexts and that kind of thing. But it doesn't lend itself very well to, like, um, you know, just playing, mm. just going around and playing. Tell me, does this, does this make its way into like Bangkok or Central Thai? Is it uh, like, do they, do they like to, is this, is this exciting or interesting for them or is it more outside of the canon? It's really hard to find, number one, and really hard to play. So, um, and the symbolic of the Lana mm-hmm. in Chiang Mai, in Chiang Rai, Lampun, Lampang, Plae, Payao. Um, yes, I was thinking, of, you mentioned about the Cambodia. So the Cambodia mm-hmm. got the same, about yeah. the same uh, instrument too. I don't, I, I'm not so sure about the name. The Sedev, I think it's Sedev, I think it's called. Yeah. And Pin play Sedev. the same. It's similar. The one in Cambodia, my recollection is it typically only has one string. Mm. And uh, there's a version of that you find in, in Thailand as well. Um, the most common one has got four strings on it. Um, this one that I played in the studio is just uh, two strings. But um, yeah, its roots are in Cambodia. And mm. I don't think it's all that common of an instrument there either. Oh, really? Yeah. And but. mechanism I asked you before about a danbao. Um, oh, that's The same Vietnam. harmonic making. And well, more vibrato yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, there's an instrument in uh, from Vietnam called the Dan Bao, which is not a chest resonated stick zither, right? It's a uh, it's you know a long piece of wood that's kind of you know a resonating body, mm-hmm. and then there's a buffalo horn that it sticks up on one side, and then the string is strung from the buffalo horn down to the body, and you hold a stick in your hand when in one hand that plucks the string, the other hand will hold the buffalo horn, and uh, when you pluck the string, you tap it on the side to get the overtones, and then you use the buffalo horn to uh, change the tension on the string, so you get a lot of wah 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 wah. The mm. vibrato effects come from that, so it's kind of like a whammy bar on an electric guitar, right. <laughs> and it's a really cool instrument. But I don't think it has much relationship okay. other than the idea they both play harmonics. Um, the two instruments don't have much relationship otherwise. But uh, um, I mean, a, l- a lot of the, especially in mainland Southeast Asia, you see the, you know, the, the famously the Thai and Burmese, like their their political conflicts and, and, you know, whole groups of court musicians on both sides are sort of captured and taken and, and, um, mm-hmm. and from Cambodia as well. And so there's this, uh, there's these kind of really amazing, like, um, what... It, it, the, these crossovers as, as, as they're borrowing and adapting, um, uh, who decides in, in, you know, in, in sort of Thai kind of music pantheon, like what, what is, what's in the center and what's at the periphery of Thai music? What, what would you say, Chan? I believe the, the fire art department of Bangkok, they, <laughs> they dominate too many and they, they, well, yeah. I, yeah. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, the Lana traditions, I think part of it is that just... <laughs> and Chamni, you might be able to speak to this sort of yes. the stereotype uh, of the, the Lana regions. The, the ladies are, you know, sweeter. They talk quieter. Mm-hmm. Movement is slower, you know, compared to Isan, where it's like, you know, vibrant and bouncy. And, you know, the, the parallel, I suppose, for the Pimpia in, in Isan in the Northeast would be the can, right? Right, And right. the can, the free reed yeah. mouth organ very energetic, vibrant, yeah, the yeah. music is very loud and peppy, and the Lana music is not that. It's very serene and calm, and uh, and so I think that's why maybe... And, and the Bangkok music, you know, the Central Thai music is 
louder and certainly associated mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, important occasions and such. And so those traditions are what are most visible in Thailand. The Lana music traditions are much less visible mm. um, in part just because of the character of the music. All right. I, g- I want to give both you gentlemen a chance to plug. Um, uh, so, uh, Johnny, you first tell us about uh, tell w- w- in the Chicagoland area. Where can we hear uh, Thai music? Thai music. Oh, I try to be the headquarter of the Midwest. I try. <laughs> I try really hard. You're doing um, very well at it. Yeah, I try to connect to UCLA and Kent State, mm-hmm. and Chicago should be me. Mm-hmm. and manipulate myself to be the king <laughs> of the Midwest <laughs> Thai music. So I have the Facebook on Thai music at Chicago to try to make the pro- progress of the music movement in Thailand and share to the uh, American society too. And performance, you can check out the Thai Culture and Fine Art Institute of Chicago to uh, be really active. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, not upon make the... Yeah, you're posting uh, stuff all the time. It's great. <laughs> yes, thank you. Natwapon made the research on his thesis about the, the the way that the Thai music movement and about the teaching pedagogy too, mm-hmm. and that that become like somebody um, impress or want to make the scholar writing about what I'm been working with the kids, mm-hmm. but my point of view is is not just performing the same thing like build the community. Um, music is something that you don't need to speak Thai like Kent State, but they know exactly the gesture and uh, represent of the respect and the culture by doing it, not mm-hmm. speaking it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Thai American that we taken care of, uh, they they speak Thai, uh, but they is limited Thai. Uh, they performing very good, um, and that we use those those kids to um, make the show, and that become the performance of Thai in Thai Chicago too. I hope that eventually uh, we're gonna make the concert eventually in April that uh, Kent State will come and UCLA will come to DeKalb and That'd be fantastic. do the same song. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of uh, performers, but I don't know the audience. But uh, yeah. we, we take turn. We take <laughs> turn. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, Andrew, tell us about the I guess the Kent State Music Ensemble and uh, um, and. I'll join Chami in saying you can, you should you should come and perform. <laughs> well, that'll be up to our director, Prayvonanukam, uh, but I'm sure he'd be excited to do that. You know, I think that uh, Chamni and, and Ajahn Kyo have a very good relationship, um, and it's you know it's nice to be able to connect. I think he finds it great to have a peer, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the realm of Thai music, whereas Chamni's focus is on community, um, his focus is on academic. Uh, Kent State University's Thai Ensemble. I never can remember the year it started, but it's like you know 1980s. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a long t- running, longest running academic ensemble of Thai music in in the country. It's part of the curriculum, which is a little bit different than UCLA, where um, every semester it's you know they have to make sure they have enough financial support to uh, keep the thing right. going. Yours is perpetually. Ours is there. perpetual. It's going to be there, and you know awesome. uh, we're we're. We our ensemble is made up of you know non-majors as well as majors, graduate students and undergraduates. Um, we also have 
uh, in our dance department in the last few years, we have a professor there who focuses on Thai dance. And so in the last four or five years, we've been able to combine the two and kind of become, if you want to study Thai music and dance in the United States mm-hmm. in, at a university setting, you should come Kent to Kent State, State wow. because you know, you'll know you get the best best there. And Keo is also a, a master performer on the can, can. the, the folk yeah. music. We have a student right now who is uh, studying can and plans to go back to Thailand to do his research there. Charlie? Yeah, Charlie. Mm-hmm. And Natapon that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, was our first student from Thailand in sort of the new era since Terry Miller retired of the program to come and, um, you know, study in our program. And now he's at UC Riverside doing great things in uh, the Bipot tradition. Yeah, yeah. He's a great student. We have uh, Jeng is is, uh, there now, and he's a Jake player. And so we're hoping we can continue to bring Thai students to study in our program because not only do they learn about ethnomusicology and how American ethnomusicologists, you know, approach the study of music, but uh, our ensemble benefits from having typically, you know, somebody who has some musical experience as an insider can complement what Ajahn Kyo teaches the students. I would give credit to Dr. Han for my term too. Um, he saw my potential to the NIU in that time, 1998 to 2001. Dr. Han providing me uh, some some sort of that that opportunities too. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, that we stopped in 2001 for Thai Music Ensemble at NIU. Mm. And we will reopen again next semester. That excited. Yeah, and yeah. We, we try to make. Tommy's going to be teaching. I I hope so, right, Doctor yeah. Wong? And uh, yes. Well, I think one of the great things about the fact that Chumney, you're doing what you're doing, and that we're continuing the study of Thai music. <laughs> Americans relate very easily to food, right? And Thai cuisine is yes. super popular right now, right? So it's kind of their entryway into the culture of Thailand is through food, and another way to do that is through music. So I'm hoping that we can get. Yeah, um, you know our audiences are usually pretty good because they've heard of Thai food. They're curious about Thai music, and so uh, they'll come and check it out. Well, uh, again, once again, uh, Tommy Andrew, thanks for thanks for joining us, and uh, come back again soon, please. Yeah, thanks for doing this. This was fun. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.